Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. Emmanuel Macron kickstarted the political week by inviting us to join the Renaissance. That's the name of his new European movement, and it's based on a letter he wrote directly to Europeans and had published across Europe Monday evening. In the letter, he calls nationalists liars without solutions and reels off a list of projects and institutions that the EU needs to engage in to protect Europeans from the ravages of globalization, climate change and tax evaders. He seems energized by being forced back into the lives of ordinary people, the ones he struggled to come to grips with as the Yellow Jackets protest movement emerged at the end of 2018. It was a beautiful letter to read but it also writes the billboards for the Brexit campaign if it's ever forced into a second referendum. We got the Politico team to pit Renaissance versus reality, scoring Macron's chances for success in individual policy areas. The answers range from 1 out of 5 to 4 out of 5, with an average of just under 3 out of 5. Here's another collision with reality that didn't get enough airplay this week. Europe's forecasted economic growth has been cut in half by the OECD. In the case of Italy, it's worse. They're predicted to dive into recession. German growth predictions were more than halved and the UK's were nearly halved. The point? Brexit and trade war uncertainty globally is starting to bite. This isn't just an issue for one set of geeks or another now. It's starting to hurt everyone. And that means more political fights and more pain in your pocket. But enough of the gloom. It's International Women's Day this week and we're chatting with the first female leader of a Middle Eastern parliament, Amal al Kubaisi the president, a.k.a. speaker, of the United Arab Emirates Federal National Council. Following President al on this episode, I introduced you Cornelius Hirsch. He's the co-founder of pollofpolls.eu, a great website that is Europe's answer to 538. And in even better news, Politico bought the site last week, so we'll be integrating all of their great work into politico.eu in coming weeks and months. First up, Amal al Dr. Alkabizi and I had a really long catch-up when she came to Brussels to discuss the UAE's multi-billion euro humanitarian aid program. Together with the EU, they're among the world's biggest donors, dealing with, amongst other things, the hellish situation millions now face in Yemen. Here are some of the other highlights of our conversation. Now, one kind of cold conflict, I guess you might call it, that I think a lot of Europeans, I would be willing to say, don't really understand is the major disagreement that a lot of countries in the Gulf have with Qatar at the moment. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You share a naval border with Qatar, and I think a lot of people in Europe don't understand why this disagreement exists. 
Well, Qatar is part of the GCC countries, and for us, I'm talking from a parliamentarian aspect, Qatari people have always been and will continue to be brothers, and this relation will never change. Mm -hmm. And we believe that the situation with Qatar now is due to its unfortunate continuous insisting on whether financing terrorist acts Mm -hmm. or uh, hosting people who are a part of the terrorist list. And because of these actions, in 2014 in Riyadh, an agreement has been laid down where there were conditions Qatar was supposed to fulfill. Mm-hmm. And after, you know, three years of continuous patience on the situation, this didn't happen. And accordingly to us, we had to take an action in order to, you know, show a solid, as you can call it, understanding, but also a solid position mm-hmm. against these kind of acts that we will never put up with. And that's affecting all our countries. We are also still hopeful to find, you know, a diplomatic solution along that. And does it have practical impacts, for example, you know, the other aspects of Gulf cooperation, where you have now a common market, you have a customs union? Does it mean that Qatar is now not part of no, those functions? No, actually, they continue to have the GCC meetings as mm-hmm. normal. The different committees on different levels are still meeting mm-hmm. and the, all the agreements and projects are still going ahead. Actually, it hasn't been affecting the GCC work or plans. As I said, the way we see it, it's part of our commitment to even a brother when his actions are not as bare the principles we all agreed on and affecting the whole international community is to show that we will all stand together and face even these kind of violations of our, you know, the principles that we came all along together with. Mm -hmm. And until, you know, Qatar stop these kind of acts that we cannot tolerate with, we will continue to have the same, you know, status. Mm -hmm. And I think the Qatari people and uh, all the GCC people, as I said, they are a family and we will continue to be a family. Tolerance is an interesting word. I understand that you're participating in 2019 as a year of tolerance. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that means to Emiratis and how you plan to fill out the year? Tolerance is a value that we embrace highly. Since uh, before even the establishment of the UAE, Emirati people as a culture, tolerance was practiced highly. But we believe in governance too. So Mm -hmm. we have established a ministry for tolerance, which is the first of its kind in the world. Mm -hmm. And we have the International Institute for Tolerance. We have Sheikh Mohammed Bin Rashid Prize for Tolerance and many different programs. This year, 2019, the UAE have declared it as a year of tolerance. I think it sends a very strong message to the whole world. It's not only about how we practice tolerance within UAE. We want to emphasize on spreading this value among all of us and the international communities. And I think tolerance is another phase of fighting back extremism and terrorism because terrorism is really being fed and on the root, you know, causes of it, which comes from extremism, 
Tolerance is a very important way of respecting each other, of coexistence. We have, you know, also legislations that really criminalize people for spreading, you know, hate or not respecting others, you know, religions. And more than that, setting a kind of a role model so that it's mostly needed in our world to tolerate each other. And I think it's important also to understand each other. And part of understanding is knowing also that it doesn't necessarily, we have to be all alike. Differences also can embrace our comprehensive and holistic you know, way of coexistence. And we can share the same vision, but we can have different ways of delivering it. The UAE also been working beside this. We, we are trying to set standards in, in showing the government of future mm-hmm. and how we are foreseeing the future from now. It's tremendous, whether on the leadership level or government or even the parliament. In UAE, we have a plan for 2021, but also 2071 Mm -hmm. that will commemorate 100 of the establishment of UAE. And it all now depends also on new means when we're talking about artificial intelligence, we're talking about advanced sciences, food security. And beside all these, empowerment of youth is a very important priority. Beside the empowerment of women, and there's also a side of it when it comes to political participation. Lately, it's been declared that the Federal National Council will have 50 representation of women. 50%? 50%. Wow. We will be having quite substantial. It it is. Mm -hmm. And it shows you that people of the UAE look at women with very high respect, but also Mm -hmm. in a way that if a development is, let's say, like a an eagle or a falcon, it won't be able to fly high and reach its, you know, highest limit if its uh, two folds or two, you know, wings are not expanded uh, to their full. And one of them is men and one of them is women. Mm-hmm. So we, we are also very proud of the partnership we have with mm-hmm. men at the UAE. And this kind of empowerment and working together have transformed the women in UAE from empowerment of women to empowering community through women. Mm-hmm. And uh, And you feel there will be enough candidates that are coming forward? There won't be any problem with people who want to be elected? I'm sure that there will be more coming. And, you know, in the parliament, you know, it was 2006 when the first woman joined the parliament through election. And I'm glad and proud to be that one. And in only, you know, eight years, the woman became the speaker of the parliament. Mm -hmm. And that shows you the advancement, a huge advancement and fast one that the UAE is going through. And we set also standards and as a role model for others. Dr. Al-Kabaisi, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you so much. You were listening to Amal Al-Kabaisi, president of the United Arab Emirates Federal National Council. Next up, polling geek Cornelius Hirsch. Hi, Cornelius. Hi, good to be here. Got to give you a special introduction. You are the guy who founded pollofpolls.eu, and we at Politico loved it so much, we bought you. And now you're joining the Politico team, and we're going to integrate all of your great work into the coverage we do around elections, not just for the European Parliament, but beyond into the future. So welcome to the team. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited. Tell us maybe a little bit about what you were trying to do when you set up Poll of Polls, and then we'll go in to talk about some of the latest national and European opinion polls. So 
I always wanted a website that I could go to to see what's the status of the race, who's ahead in which election and which campaign. And I always missed something like a 538 for Europe. So two years ago, me and my colleague Peter Rischnover, we decided to just build such a website on our own. And we founded polofpolls.eu together because we think that polls are indeed insightful and can help to assess the status of a race and of an election. And although polls had some bad reputations in the recent years, we actually think that's a little bit unfair because polls are like a fine perfume. You should smell it, but you should not drink it. Polls always come with an uncertainty, but the good thing is you can factor that uncertainty in. And studies have shown that this polling area is really consistent across time and elections. And especially when you think about the European Parliament election context, yes. where there are so many unknown factors and people really look at the end of their noses and not at the pan-European picture. Almost anything is progress. Just the fact that you had the website was progress in and of itself. And then as you refine the techniques, it's going to help build a much better European level discussion. Yeah, that's what we hope as well. We just want to contribute to this debate and to a really European debate when it comes to this election and help all voters all across all countries to get informed which parties are ahead in which countries and to assess who's most likely to win. Now, the first way that we've been able to do that together is we've been doing these daily updated seat projections, which you find either on polarpolls.eu or on Politico. And what that's really done, I think, is actually help frame the narrative around the election, where it's very clear that the two biggest parties, the European People's Party and the Socialists, are not going to have a majority of seats in the next European Parliament. And it also shows generally that the Eurosceptics are going to be doing better, but there's no far-right takeover coming of the European Parliament. What's your top message from those numbers about who's ahead and what power they'll have after the election? Yeah, if you look at our daily updated seat tracker for the European Parliament election, then uh, you can clearly see that the EPP is clearly ahead, followed by the Social Democrats. And then the really interesting trend is the increase of the Liberal Group, which at the moment, if the alliance with En Marche holds, could even get close to 100 seats, which was their initial uh, goal. And uh, when it comes to this Eurosceptic wave, actually, if you look closer at the numbers by country, then you see that it's mainly driven by one party, and that is Salvini's Lega in Italy. Because, for example, Le Pen's party in France is actually very likely to even lose seats compared to 2014. Exactly. And now, if we think about the impact of someone like Viktor Orban, he might be expelled from the European People's Party on the 20th of March. He's on track for something like 13 to 15 seats. Essentially, even if the EPP ditch him, they'll still be the biggest party, basically, won't they? Yes, yes, that's true. They would lose uh, like 13 seats, but that would still, at the moment, get them to about 170 seats, uh, way ahead of the Social Democrats which are still on a slightly downwards trend with the only improvements coming at the moment from Spain and a little bit from Germany where you see a recovery. Now, I don't know about your interpretation, but I haven't seen evidence of a green wave, which is something that uh, especially a lot of environmentally minded people have spoken about mm -hmm. because they've had big successes in national elections in places like Luxembourg. They're polling really well in Germany. But overall, their numbers are, are pretty much what they were last time around. Exactly, yeah. They can expect about the same number of seats uh, in the next European Parliament at the moment. But this green wave, I think, is mostly also driven by headlines like those climate demonstrations at the moment, those protests marched by students. And of course, there was a wave. When they can vote, maybe there'll be a green wave. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I mean, there was a wave in Germany, definitely, right? The Greens in Germany, they 
overtook the Social Democrats in the polls, and that was visible. And then it was that also translated into more seats in the European Parliament seat projection on our website. But that was uh, basically in one country. Although it's, it is true they had some good re-election results, and that will help them in the European Parliament election. But in total, we expect about the same number as last time. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe let's take a couple of countries that people are, have been quite worried about or talking about a lot. We've got the case of Italy. So the Lega seem like they're on track to potentially be the biggest or the second biggest national party in the entire parliament. Like maybe only the German Christian Democrats would be bigger than them. And they also seem to be diverging from the five star, as in the five stars came first in the 2018 Italian election, and they've actually crossed over on the polls with Lega, haven't they? And Lega is sort of going ahead further and further. Yeah, that's really a significant trend in Italy since the election. For Lega, it's gone up and up while for the five-star movement is now down to like 22% in our national poll tracker and just uh, three points ahead of the Social Democrats, which have recovered slightly recently. And what did you make of Luigi Di Maio from Five Star? He essentially pulled out of one of the Eurosceptic groups in the parliament, the Europe of Freedom and Direct Democracy, Mm -hmm. where they were combined with parties like the UK Independence Party. And he said he's going to set up a new group, basically. But I was very surprised because that group basically has only three parties that are on track to win seats and they wouldn't even qualify as a formal grouping at this point. So it kind of looks a bit rough for him, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, We don't see how uh, he'd be able to form a group at the moment to meet the criteria that are necessary. But it is indeed interesting and that's the big, big known unknown. Which groups will those parties from the dissolving EFDD and all those newcomers join. I mean, that's going to be the really interesting and determining factor for this election and also regarding a potential Eurosceptic bloc. So that brings us right to Matteo Salvini and Law and Justice in Poland. They are the two biggest Eurosceptical parties that are actually in government, as opposed to someone like National Rally or Alternative for Deutschland. And they're obviously maneuvering to sort of be the head honchos in that Eurosceptic system. And it's interesting where if they were either able to combine forces or one of them could bring over Fidesz into their camp, then they could take over from a party like the Liberals to be the third biggest bloc in Parliament. Yes, I mean, that is a potential uh, scenario, but... You sound sceptical, that was a big sigh. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, because I think there are too many issues that they disagree on, especially when it comes to the relation with Russia. And I also found it really interesting that Salvini actually talked about a counterpart to the Berlin-Paris axis. And he talked about his Polish-Italian axis that they want to have. And I think that's really telling because, well, uh, Merkel's CDU and uh, Macron's en marche are not in the same group. They work together on many issues, and that's maybe also what Salvini has in mind. But it didn't sound as if he really believes that he will be able to form a common group with the PIS in Poland. And then maybe a final question on Poland specifically. Have you seen any impact from these opposition moves in Poland, where we've seen two, there's one party, a new one, Wojna, which is a center-left party, might even be joining the socialists, it seems, from the conferences they've been appearing at recently. How have they been doing in the polls? And then we've also heard news that most of the big opposition parties wanted to form a coalition to basically try and block law and justice. And I wonder, do they look like they're going to have that effect? Could they come first in the European elections? For your second questions, uh, we can't really tell that yet. There have not been enough polls yet, but it is indeed looking as if the combined force of the coalition could come into striking distance to 
the PIS and it could become more interesting to race for the first place. But we can't really tell that yet because there haven't been enough polls so far. And the Oshner Party by Robert Birdron made a big debut in the polls and, and skyrocketed to like 11% immediately. And that seemed to hurt right at the other opposition party. So the PO decreased significantly. Yeah, their success in, in comes at a price of hurting the, the opposition party they're supposed and to be not, working with. Exactly, and not so much the PIS, which actually increased slightly since the Viosna is included in our model as well. Well, maybe the next thing we talk about when we get you back on the podcast, we're going to make this a regular thing, is some Brexit impacts and what would happen if the UK actually ended up voting in this election and what that would do for the numbers or who might become commission president. But thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Now it's time for the podcast panel. Welcome back to the panel, Lena Eberers. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Alpha. And hello, Alva Finn. Hi, guys. It is that time of the year again where the, uh, what would we call them? The curtain twitches uh, who have been looking through the stage curtains of the panels and other events at Brussels to see whether those events are diverse or not have issued their data. And their data is telling us that Brussels is getting very slowly more diverse on stage, but that it might be a very long time before equality is achieved. Maybe we can run through different statistics in the course of the conversation, but let's kick off with the thought that it will take until 2098, 2098, for gender parity to be achieved on stage at EU-related events. You're shaking your head, Lena. That's, that's in my life. I mean, that, well, that, that, that's... Cryogenics, I'll be cryotherapy, you know, it's all know. possible, Lena. Botox doesn't work there, no? <laughs> <laughs> Botox on your heart. <laughs> uh, maybe. Maybe you'll still be alive, but you should do something <laughs> in the interim anyway, Lena, right? You can yeah, be yeah, providing gender diversity You could storm the stage. <laughs> I yeah, mean, of course, yeah. Every time you see a manual, ladies, power ladies of Brussels, just... Get out of your seat and say no. We should do a campaign. We should do a group of people like that. Yeah, we storm the stages. Why not? Mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely have brought it up. I've asked questions like, could you not? Could you not? Here's find an idea. Someone? Sorry to talk over a woman to express yeah. this, but there we go. Um, why don't the panel watch organizers or other activists? There should be a sign saying no manuals or manual, and you should just hold it up in the air when you see one. That would be brilliant. And yeah. then you've just got a bunch of purple or pink signs going no manuals. And yeah. that's going to get the message across, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, the, but the, oh, the other thing is that men have power, right, unfortunately, and women can be helped by allies who are men. So if you, gentlemen listeners, are asked to take part in a panel that is completely only men, what you should do is refuse to accept until there is gender diversity, there is a balance. So this is something that I think can really help because if you bring it to someone's attention, and we see a lot, I've seen it a few times where this has happened and people have refused even to do keynotes unless there's proper gender diversity. I think that would move things forward mm. as well. And I, I'm just looking at our panel, Ryan, and you very much picked it so that we would be, we're, we're not even... I did. I was like, no manuals. I was very clear that wasn't going to happen. But you know what I haven't done is do a data search like the panel watch people we haven't mm. tallied up how many men we had as feature interviewees and how many women and mm. i think we ought to do it mm. because we might be surprised yeah. you know like we know there are more men than women yeah. as the feature yeah. interviews 
but I bet we'll be surprised at the number if we tally it up. Mm, yeah, you should definitely do that. But it would be interesting for the commissioners or the next commission as well to put like on their checklist. They would never say yes to a panel unless there are other women, especially the, the male and the mm. females. Because sometimes, surprisingly enough, you would see one of our strong female commissioners sitting with a bunch of men. But why? Why did you participate? Yeah. Do something about it and say, hey, listen, until you get me another three, four, I or at least the moderator to be a female. But if it doesn't come from top to bottom, we have a problem. I tell you what, there's basic human error sometimes as well, because I did it this afternoon where I was appearing on a television program and two thirds of it, two of the three sections were fine. But the first one sat down, it was three men and the female moderator. And I thought, I've done it to myself. I'm about to go and talk about diversity. And I didn't even think to ask. I just said, yeah, I'll turn up. Hmm. And so it wasn't that I was planning. Yeah. It's just that my own lack of activity generated but the situation. But it will take us some time until it's, it's a kind of routine and we have to practice. Because it doesn't occur to, to the mind when you have such a good panel or such a good event and it's a good opportunity. You just say, okay, without thinking twice. But we should raise this issue much more, especially among the politicians. Now, there's another layer to the diversity debate that has been added into this data gathering process, and that is how many people of color appear on stages in Brussels. And the good-ish news is that unlike often in the Brussels bubble, where it really is a Brussels so white sort of situation, the number of people of color on stage actually outranks the number of senior people in the commission, in the parliament, and so on. So that's good news, but it is still only 6% of people on stage are Mm. non-white. Oof. Yeah, that's not good. But I I always say this, you know, like, it's not just about gender equality. It's also about other types of equality. And we just don't have that on panels. You know, when's the last time you saw a trans person talking about gender, for example, on a gender equality panel? I mean, there are many other different types of gender now. And that's not reflected at all, even in conversations about gender. Mm. So that's another area. But I mean, class race, religion. Class is a big one in Brussels. Mm. You know, Mm. you basically have to have a master's degree to even get paid in this town. And then frequently people with master's degrees don't get paid. They're running around on unpaid internships. Mm. So I really, you know, struggle to see how, and okay, I grew up in Australia, so it's a bad example, but the communities I grew up in and the people I went to school with, you know, virtually none of them could get a job related to anything to do with the EU. That's a terrible reflection in some ways of how the whole place is structured. You know, lately I have encountered a couple of projects taking place outside of Brussels in uh, other parts of the world, but funded by the EU. And they are two conferences. And most of the conferences, all European speakers, zero women. I just thought to share this with you. Because if it is a sort of a public diplomacy and spreading the values and talking about human rights and uh, gender equality as well, maybe when the EU funds the projects or oversees uh, the spending of these funds, they should as well put it in their balances and their checklists. Uh, It's really interesting to see that. I Well, at the moment I'm doing, uh, well, I do a lot of advocacy around the the development fund and and how it should be structured and the design of it. And there is such pushback. We have a a benchmark, 85% of all overseas development aid that is given by the EU should 
have gender somewhere in the objective. And they're really fighting against having this in their fund. The recipients of the money or the officials who the, manage the fund. The EU, the Commission, and have been pushing back against having this benchmark. Even oh, though Margaret Wallström won't be pleased to hear that if she doesn't know it already. This is the Sweden foreign minister who pushes a feminist foreign policy. And Sweden's objective is that gender will be mentioned in every single foreign mm. policy mm. document or mm. declaration or press release they sign. Yeah, I mean, we've been trying to push it there, but there's such a resistance because they don't understand, you know, this is about gender mainstreaming. It's not about having everything focused on women. You know, that's not what gender equality means and is. It's much broader than that. And realistically, when you spend money anywhere, you can think, oh, how will this affect a pregnant woman? You know, rather than always just the go-to thinking of a man which is unfortunately how we do a lot of our budgeting, how we build buildings, how we develop our healthcare systems, Mm -hmm. all of these kind of things. Even when we test things, we sometimes just test them on men, even though women are more likely to buy (gasps) things. Let's talk about the case of Viagra, where it in fact was demonstrated in early trials to essentially very effectively alleviate period pain in the course of about four hours. And the all-male panel that was reviewing it didn't consider that to be in the public health interest and so it was never put forward to further trials and marketed as a period pain drug and it's been helping men achieve other satisfaction ever since. Thank you for that piece of information. Exactly. How to can be I tried. get a, yeah, a, a Viagra <laughs> well, prescription? Marie Leconte, <laughs> if you don't follow her on Twitter, you definitely should. Now, here's a question. How pushy should a male ally be in some of these situations? And I raise a recent example when I interviewed Nick Clegg and I took questions from the audience and I took questions from two men and I made clear before the questions started that we were going to be gender equal. And then it was very awkward. And so I eventually had to say, well, like, I'm not taking another question unless it's from a woman. And then that was described as cringeworthy by some other female observers on Twitter. But I was quite proud of doing it. And then I was surprised to get that negative reaction that people thought I was turning it into theatre rather than serious points. But I don't know. Should men who are moderators do stuff like that? Definitely. And you should keep pushing for it and don't be frustrated. And uh, there's a difference between feminists and one side when they think that everything is perfect in their word and and then there's the other side that they're trying to be there they're shy they're embarrassed they don't have the the push because uh, no definitely keep doing it and um, and i would like to to help more in that definitely yeah i think that some people would say oh that's patronizing but actually i just think you should say like i'm being an ally if you don't push and that's my entire point at the beginning of the panel was basically If men don't change how they appear on stage and in panels, then nothing will change. But sometimes women won't speak. Many times, actually. Many times. If I'm sitting there ordering them to speak, that's probably not the right dynamic. There's probably ways you can do it rather than you must speak. You're introducing a change. It will take time. We're not used to find moderators who care if a woman is asking questions or not. We're not. In Brussels, I go to many events. I think maybe you are the only one, Ryan, who would raise this issue. It's definitely good, though, that you offered the opportunity. And I think that's the whole thing about panels is that women aren't asked enough, you know, and not enough women. So I also hear this complaint of, oh, the other woman on the panel has actually cancelled. I'm like, well, then don't only have one woman on a panel then and you won't. Yeah. So there, I mean, you can literally download guides about how to, how to do proper. Or maybe have less panels. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's I mean, probably that's, a good lesson for That Brussels. is absolutely true. No, yeah, Impossible mission in <laughs> Ryan, I know that you want to talk about the parliament and its the election. Parliament, and yes. The parliament has decided to conduct its own 
polling, which is to say that it is measured via specially commissioned polling and through analysis from the people who work in the 27 offices in the national capitals of the EU member states that will be voting in this election. I say that advisedly because maybe the UK is still going to join in. But anyway, the point is that Parliament is spending an awful lot of money to predict who its own future members are going to be. And that strikes me as extraordinary. I don't know any other electoral authority or parliament in the world that would conduct such polling. I know also that there are many private organizations doing that analysis or that that polling, and Politico is amongst them. So it does strike me a little bit like if the parliament is going to go out and do all of this work, which is roughly in line with what we ourselves predict and, and, and have measured, then it really makes it harder for people like independent media outlets to make money. And also it's just very weird that they would just be involved in this at all. And I don't know mm. if that's me being strange and sensitive or whether you agree with that. It's really strange because it's like a self-endorsement or it's the miracle house that can do everything. They have, I Or think, it's a bit trying to figure out how uh, many Eurosceptics are coming from, to yeah, bash down the front door. Is, is this the worry? I wish they have done that before, like two years ago or like on yearly basis. They would see where are we heading with well, that. Well, they yeah? do say that. They say they have a Eurobarometer survey that measures people's worries and yeah. priorities and so on and, and how much they trust the EU or not. But so this time they hired a private company to, to do it for them. Oh, they always hire a yeah. private company to do it. But this time it's specifically Um, projecting who will win the 705 seats in the European Parliament elections. But the Eurobarometer is carried out by a private company. It has to be. Like, the only people that have the skills to do it are private companies. Like, it's because you need to be able to interview a thousand people in each EU country. And, And you know, unless unless the Parliament had... 23 different language groups worth of polling experts you just wouldn't have that skills in one place oh i just assumed they would have it because i mean they've been carrying them out for like 25 years Mm -hmm. i just assumed they had that in-house i think they have the people who coordinate the projects Mm. and who analyze the numbers yes that exists in-house but not the people who actually go and do the interviews but but still they do some of the analysis themselves right and they probably make up the the questions and we've used some of it in our own european election hub like i don't want to say we think what the data is is wrong like it's it's roughly on track but it just occurred to me that maybe they only trust their own sources you know i don't know i don't have so much of a distrust of, of it to be honest because mm. there are other people who do it i think would yeah, the irish parliament do something like this uh i have no idea i've never yeah i, I i've never read a poll from them for example but i think the european parliament is much more complex right and it's obviously cross-regional crossing borders and yeah maybe they want to have a it's quite you might be able to predict what's going to happen in ireland right because you have national polls is that they don't think people are interested in the european parliament election so if they create all of this content and make it super easy for them to Mm -hmm. just copy paste that maybe more people will write about the election and talk about the election that would be very that's clever but my problem with it wouldn't be that they are undermining someone else making profit from it. Yeah, that wouldn't be my my problem with it. I definitely think that the more people are talking about the European elections, the better. I think it's not their job. I don't think it is either. There we go. We've actually argued about something. That's great news. Thank you, Alva. Thank you, Lena. Pleasure. See you next time. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. My big thanks to the team, Christina Gonzalez, Wei Dong Lin and Andrew Gray. And make sure you check out the XX Factor, 
our new special series of episodes on women, power, and the EU election. Have a listen to this teaser. There's never a bad time for equality, is there? I don't think that it takes time. I think it has taken enough time. EU Confidential brings you a special new mini-series on women, power, and the EU election. I'm Lily Beyer, reporter at Politico and the host of our inaugural episode of the XX Factor. I think it's important to have this feminism at the European level because we can change things. That's Maria Arena, MEP from Belgium and member of the Socialists and Democrats group who is running for re-election. I was a little bit surprised when I came here at the European Parliament because I saw that we are more than 30%. And I said, oh, it's nice. At the European level, we are well represented. And finally, I tried to discuss with all the different parties. And in fact, it was not for the good reason. It's because Europe is seen at the national level as less important. And it is why men are not running for Europe. And it is why we have more space for women. We'll also hear from the youngest generation of candidates trying to make their way into Parliament. We not only want a Europe which is a Europe of gender equality, but also a Europe which is truly feminist. Because it doesn't help us to get more women in positions of power if then those women will be simply reproducing the existing power structures. Women's Day marches are reverberating around the globe. As a woman, I feel like the future is female. In the weeks leading up to the EU election, we'll explore the topics that matter to Europe from a female lens. Have you ever asked a man if he's good and qualified for this position? The XX Factor, coming soon to your EU Confidential podcast feed. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.